Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Do um, please keep the Bible open at Judges chapter 6. We're in a series working our way through the book of Judges, and I think we're probably about halfway through. Um, We'll probably do 12 in all, something like that, and finish at the end of term 3. But um, it is a very profitable series, and I'm certainly learning things that uh, I didn't know before, and I hope you are too. Uh, Anyway, won't you please bow with me and let's ask for God's help as we come to this fascinating story. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for an open Bible. Uh, Lord, we confess our weakness and our frailty to understand it apart from your help. So we ask that you would rend the heavens this morning and that you would come down by your Holy Spirit and speak to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you know what it is as a Christian man or woman to find yourself completely overwhelmed by some particular situation. Uh, It might perhaps be the current situation in South Africa, which is, I think, increasingly given over to to violence, to lawlessness, and to corruption. Uh, Or it might be the situation in the wider church, uh, which seems, doesn't it, to be drifting further and further away from biblical truth and from biblical morality. It might be a situation in your workplace or even in your own home and family. Whatever it is, It is a humiliating situation for Christian people to find themselves in because it is dishonouring to God. And we feel helpless to do anything about it, uh, even to make some contribution towards finding a solution to the problem. Now, if you have ever known that situation of feeling completely and utterly overwhelmed, then Gideon is your man. Gideon explodes the myth that God only works through majorities, through large groups, through popular groups. Gideon was called to leadership when his country had reached rock bottom. He felt hopelessly inadequate for the task Uh, But God equipped him to rescue Israel from their humiliation. Now, uh, the first paragraph in chapter 6 describes the misery of Israel at that time. And I know we've seen something of this before. But the description of Israel's misery here is actually more intense and more detailed than anywhere else in the book. And we won't actually fully appreciate the deliverance that God accomplished through Gideon unless we first see the depth of the problem. So, verse 1, we see again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, of course, if you've been with us in this series, you know that that is nothing new. Uh, Throughout the period of the Judges, Israel were always backsliding. And so in the second half of verse 1, for seven years, 
God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 2 is interesting because it says that the tyranny of the Midianites was so brutal that the Israelites actually went into hiding. It says they prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and mountain caves. Now, can you imagine anything more humiliating than that? I mean, think about it. Here we've got the people of God, the covenant people of God, the people that God had promised to protect and to preserve. And here they are taking refuge in caves, living, as it were, underground. It was an extremely humiliating situation for them to be in. And then in verses 3 and 4, every spring and every summer, the the same pattern repeated itself. Uh, As soon as the Israelites planted their seeds, and those seeds began to sprout, well, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other tribes from the east invaded their country and lived off the land. They spared no living thing, whether on the one hand crops, or on the other hand, livestock. And every time these eastern tribes overran the country of Israel on their cavalry of camels, there were so many of them that they seemed like swarms of locusts. In other words, they were simply too numerous to count. And so, verse 6, Israel was so impoverished And their land was so devastated by the Midianites that they cried to God to have mercy on them. Now, have you got the picture in your mind so far? It is very important to understand this background. The Midianites were invading like locusts and the Israelites were disappearing into their burrows and caves like frightened rabbits. So that is the situation. The locusts on the one hand, the rabbits on the other. Uh, It was a situation of complete and utter humiliation for the people of God. Now, my friends, I don't know how much you know about church history, but the people of God, and in our terms, of course, that means the church, the people of God have often endured similar humiliations. So sometimes the church has been small and struggling. Sometimes it's been small and stagnant. Sometimes, of course, it's been large but superficial. And sometimes it is invaded by hostile anti-Christian forces. And sometimes the church retreats into its own little privatised world, which is, of course, the modern equivalent of the caves and the burrows. And the church finds itself either ignored or ridiculed. So the humiliation takes many different forms. But the question is this, what can be done when the church is experiencing such profound humiliation? 
What did God do in the time of Gideon? And what can we expect God to do in our own day and our own situation if it is one of humiliation for the people of God? Well, here in verse 7, when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And what did God send him to do? Well, he sent him to remind them who they were. Uh, Let me read what he said again in verse 8 and following. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Now that is the covenant formula. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So you see, the prophet reminded them not only of their covenant privileges, that God had rescued them from slavery and given them the land of Canaan, but he also reminded them of their covenant responsibilities as well. Do not worship other gods. I am the Lord your God. You must give your exclusive worship to me. But instead of that, you see, they'd lapsed into idolatry and there was even idolatry in Gideon's own household, as we'll see in a moment. Now, friends, still today, before God will act to rescue his people from some situation of humiliation, he first reminds us who we are. He reminds us that we've been redeemed by the cross of Christ and that we've been called to give God our exclusive worship and devotion. And through his word, he reveals the areas where we have strayed from him and wandered away like silly sheep. Now, all of that is the essential background to the story of Gideon. Uh, Gideon hasn't even been mentioned in the first ten verses, but in verse 11, he's introduced. Gideon is God's man for this particular moment to deliver God's people from their humiliation. And I think it is, I found it absolutely fascinating to see how God prepared Gideon for this unique ministry and you might want to follow where we're going in the bulletin. Because although you and I are not Gideon any more than we are Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or Joshua or any of the other famous men and women in the Old Testament, nevertheless, the principles governing God's activity are the same today as they were then. And from these principles, we can learn together 
how God can prepare you and me for useful service in his church. You see, last week we saw, didn't we, that God delights to use the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Uh, God chose Deborah, he chose Barak, he chose Jael, and he gave each one of them a significant mission. Now, we saw, didn't we, that you and I might not have chosen those people, but God did. And 3,000 years later, Christians around the world are still celebrating what God did through them. But what about us? When God calls us to some specific mission or ministry, how does he do it? Well, when the story of Gideon opens, it's made very clear that Gideon was no superman. In fact, he shared fully in the humiliation of his people. And I say that because in the second half of verse 11, you might like to look at it, we're told that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, friends, that's weird. People didn't do that. Threshing and winnowing was always done on some kind of exposed hilltop where the wind would carry away the chaff and the wheat would fall to the ground where it could be easily scooped up. But Gideon was not threshing on a windy hilltop but in a sunken wine press. Why? Well, because he was hiding from the Midianites. So can you see that Gideon shared in the humiliation of Israel? Now what did God do to prepare him for his ministry? We can see it in four stages. Number one, God gave Gideon a promise. Now I want to say to you that this episode here reminds us, I think, of God's call and commission to Moses. Moses, if you remember, was a reluctant hero. And Gideon was a reluctant hero as well. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, that was not an accurate description of what Gideon was already. But it was a prophetic picture of what Gideon was going to become when God had finished preparing him. And God's promise to Gideon in verse 12 is the Lord is with you. And then it's repeated Because in verse 13, Gideon responds by protesting about Israel's humiliation. He complains that the Lord seems to have abandoned them. And the angel responds in verse 14, Go in the strength you have, am I not sending you? In other words, you're to go in my name and in my authority, For I am sending you to save Israel out of Midian's hand. 
And then again in verses 15 and 16, when Gideon questions all of this and pointing out that his clan was the weakest in Israel and that he himself was the least in the family, the Lord replies, I will be with you. So my dear friends, can you see that God gave Gideon three encouraging words? First, the Lord is with you. Second, am I not sending you? And thirdly, I will be with you. And here you see, the word of God brought Gideon a threefold assurance without which he would not have been able to lead the people of God to victory. Now, those three phrases, the Lord is with you, am I not sending you, I will be with you, all of that is covenant language. Because the covenant formula between God and his people was, I will be your God, I will be with you, you will be my people, I am sending you. Now you see, God said that again and again and again. He said it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua. And now he says it to Gideon. I will be with you. I am the Lord your God. I'm sending you. I am accompanying you. Now, God gives us exactly the same assurance today. What was it that the risen Lord Jesus said to his disciples almost with his last words? Most of you know it, but some of you don't. So if you've been at St Barnabas for more than ten years, you don't need to turn to it. But if it's less than ten years, please will you turn to Matthew 28 on page 704. Can I hear the pages rustling? Matthew 28, page 704. Verse 18... Verse 18, then Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here it is, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now you see, before you and I can do anything useful for God in the church, we need to hear this. We need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus is with us, that he's sending us to go in his name. And it means, of course, that we need have absolutely no fear because he will accompany us. Well, won't you please come back to Judges 6? Because God gave Gideon a promise which was a triple assurance of his presence and his blessing. But then secondly, God gave Gideon 
a sign. Now friends, do you know scripture well enough to remember that the Bible emphasises again and again that God adds signs to his words. God doesn't simply give us a bare or a naked word of promise to believe. No, he clothes his word with symbols and signs. And in the case of Gideon, it's extremely clear, because in verse 17, Gideon says to God, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign. It's not enough to give me a word. I want you to give me a sign, because I want to be sure that it really is you, God, who's talking to me. And I want to be sure that you will accept the worship of your people if they turn back to you. So you see, this wasn't a random sign, this wasn't an arbitrary sign, it was a highly significant one. Because, you see, Gideon's job was to redirect the worship of the people of God away from Baal and back to the Lord, to the God of Israel. He was to redirect their worship from the false god to the true God. So if God would accept Gideon's worship, then Gideon would know that he would also accept Israel's worship if they turned back to him. And so in verse 18, Gideon asked God to wait. Rather interesting, isn't it? Would you mind waiting, God? Gideon asked God to wait until he returned with his offering. And then verse 19, he prepared a goat, some bread, some broth, and brought it back. It must have taken several hours. But then he offered them to the Lord. Verse 20, he was told to put the bread and the meat on the rock and to pour the broth over them. And when the angel of the Lord touched them with the tip of his staff, fire flared from the rock and consumed the offering. Now you see, that was a sign or a symbol that God had accepted Gideon's offering and worship. At first Gideon was terrified because he thought he'd seen God face to face, but now he knew that this really was the Lord and the Lord had accepted his worship. Now, friends, this combination of word and sign is absolutely central to biblical religion because God speaks audibly to people through his word in scripture and visibly through the signs that we call the sacraments. That is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So God not only speaks to us through the Bible, but he also demonstrates the gospel in these signs or sacraments. Now, some people think that uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper were invented by the church. That is nonsense. They were instituted by the Lord Jesus. 
And Jesus commanded his disciples to baptise believers and also to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And these two signs or sacraments remind us of the death of Jesus. They make the significance of that event visible to us. And they remind us that we are united to him and that his death was in our place. And therefore, God accepts our worship because of him. And if we're to uh, respond to the call of God to serve him in some area of ministry, you and I need to know that. And God assures us that he is our God and that we are his people both by his word and by the sacraments. So, God gave Gideon a promise and God gave Gideon a sign. Thirdly, God gave Gideon a test in verses 25 to 32. You see, God now asks Gideon to undertake a very daring exploit. Verse 25, he was to take a bull from his father's herd. He was to tear down the stone altar to Baal. He was to tear down the Asherah pole. Uh, Asherah was the Canaanite mother goddess. And he was to build a proper altar to the Lord. He was to use the wood from the Asherah pole for the sacrificial fire. And he was to offer the bull as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, to do all that was an extremely risky undertaking. It was a provocative challenge to Baal. And of course it was a provocative challenge to his own father, who apparently until that time had been a Baal worshipper himself. And you see, Gideon knew that if he provoked Baal and his father, he might very well lose his life. So can you see, this was a test of the sincerity of Gideon's commitment. Was Gideon now so committed to Yahweh that he was willing to risk his own life? So it's understandable, isn't it, that he did it at night, that he did it under cover of darkness. And in the morning when the townspeople discovered that Baal's altar had been demolished, that the Asherah pole had been cut down, that a bull had been sacrificed to the Lord and that Gideon was the culprit, they demanded that Gideon should die. But Joash, Gideon's father, who you remember had been a Baal worshipper, seems to have been wonderfully converted overnight. He was no longer a Baal worshipper. God had changed his heart. And so, you see, he confronted the hostile crowd and he challenged them. Verse 31, can we all see verse 31 in our Bibles? He says, are you going to plead Baal's cause? End of the verse. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself. 
when someone breaks down his altar. He would never have said that before. And that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself. So can you see that the word and the sign were followed by a dangerous test? Now, that is not unusual today. It is not unusual for Christian leaders who've received an assurance from God by word and by sign to have their commitment put to a painful test. It might perhaps be through a family crisis, it might be through illness or through bereavement, it might be through some painful public challenge to their ministry and their commitment is tested before they can go forward into leadership. And so fourthly here, to the word, the sign and the test, God added the spirit. God gave Gideon the spirit, verses 33 to 35. See, God, uh, Gideon had heard the word, He'd seen the sign, he'd passed the test and now he was anointed by the Spirit. Come with me to verse 33. Now all the Midianites, the Amalekites and the other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Now there was nothing unusual about that. It's actually almost a word-for-word repetition of verse 3. It had happened many occasions before. These, These hordes came across the Jordan like locusts. And of course, the Israelites would have been tempted to retreat once again into the caves and the burrows. But, this time, for the first time, it was different. Because, verse 34, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Actually, literally in the original, it says the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. Literally took control of him. And so, instead of running off to hide in a cave, Gideon blew the trumpet He rallied the people. He summoned his own tribe of Manasseh and the other neighbouring tribes. Now, it wasn't that, you see, these tribes gave him the courage to confront the Midianites. It was the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I'm sure I don't need to remind you that uh, in the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit was poured out and began to indwell the people of God on the day of Pentecost, that before the Holy Spirit became the hallmark of the authentic people of God, so that if anybody does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ, before that time, the Holy Spirit came on particular individuals, anointing, equipping and strengthening them for particular forms of service. And still today, 
Although you and I rejoice in the indwelling of the Spirit, because he is the hallmark of the authentic people of God, and although we pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and we might even experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he still comes today to equip particular people for particular tasks and he anoints them for that purpose. So, friends, there we have Gideon's fourfold preparation. The promise, the sign, the test, and the spirit. But if you're awake, you're going to say, Simon, did you read the rest of the chapter? What about the fleece? Well, over the years, uh, Christians have got terribly excited about the fleece, so we need to look at it rather carefully in verses 36 to 40. You see, that episode tells us that Gideon still had doubts. In spite of the promise and the sign and the test and the spirit, he was hesitant. So, although God had tested him, Gideon now proposed to test God. And so he puts a a woolen fleece on the threshing floor and he asked God on the first night to please make sure that the fleece would be wet and the ground around it would be dry. While on the second night, please reverse the miracle God so that the fleece is dry and the ground around it is wet. And then Gideon said, I will know. Really, Gideon? Aren't the word and the sign and the test and the spirit enough for you? Are you going to lay down a fifth condition before you believe? Now, you see, putting out a fleece, as it uh, is sometimes described, has become, apparently, an accepted practice in some Christian circles to discover the will of God. And I want to tell you I am against it. Because it is testing God. And scripture tells us we are not to put God to the test. Gideon himself admits that is precisely what he's doing in verse 39. Can we all see verse 39? He says, allow me one more... What? Test! with the fleece. I mean, do we really think that word and sign and test and spirit aren't enough? And that we have to put out a fleece, as it were, to force God's hand to prove his reality to our satisfaction. I mean, even Gideon was actually rather embarrassed about doing it. He knew perfectly well that God had promised to save Israel by Gideon's hand, because he says that in verse 36. God had promised to do it. Gideon should have believed the promise. And in verse 39 he prays, and quite right that he does, that he shouldn't arouse God's anger. No, he should not have done it. True enough, uh, God did what Gideon asked him to do. But God is like that, isn't he? he does often condescend to our foolishness. 
But just because God condescended to Gideon's folly does not mean that you and I should follow Gideon's example of unbelief. Well, let me conclude. We began this morning with the humiliation of the church. I wonder if you feel it. I know that I do. The true people of God are humiliated when there are unbelievers all around us who are saying by their attitude, if not by their words, that the church is redundant. It's a museum piece. It's a joke. It's irrelevant. Now we feel, I feel, and I hope you do too, we feel incensed by that because God's name is dishonoured. And we long to be able to do something to deliver the church from her humiliation. We want to see God exalted and we want to see it proved that we are the people of God. Now, if we do want to do something about it, well, let's remember what I'm going to call the Gideon syndrome, the Gideon factor. Now, we're going to explore this in more detail next week. But let's remember this morning that God changes things not through powerful, impressive-looking majorities, but by minorities on the one hand and even by solitary individuals on the other. So on the back of the green question sheet, listen to what great, the great Bishop J.C. Ryle had to say about this. He was the Bishop of Liverpool at the end of the 19th century. A very, very wise man. He says this, There is nothing too great to be done by a little company if only they have Christ on their side. Away with the idea that numbers alone have power. Cast away that old error that majorities alone have strength. Get hold of that great truth that minorities always move the world. Think of the little flock that Jesus left behind him and of the 120 names in that upper room of Jerusalem who went out to assault the unbelieving world. God uses minorities and he even uses solitary individuals. I will mention three in our own generation. First, Brother Andrew. At the height of the Cold War in 1955, Brother Andrew felt that God was calling him to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain into countries where Christianity was forbidden. He had no special training for the task. Humanly speaking, his methods were basic and unsophisticated. Brother Andrew simply stepped out in obedience and relied on God in prayer. And as a result, multitudes behind the Iron Curtain came to faith in Christ. And Brother Andrew, who's still alive today, 
is living testimony to the fact that God often uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. My second example is a man called Tun, or Tun, T-U-N. Today he's in his mid-thirties. He lives in Myanmar where Buddhism and tribalism make Christian ministry extremely difficult. He passed past as just a small village church in a strongly Buddhist community where the opposition to the gospel is intense. So the Christians there know all about humiliation. Now Toon is an ordinary pastor. But instead of reacting to the pressure by going underground into a cave, he loves to see people's lives transformed when they follow Christ. It fills him with joy. And as a result, God has opened the way for him to train over a thousand people in his little community to stand firm in the faith in the midst of all the persecution. Now that may not make headlines around the world, but it's a rather moving example of an ordinary, humble Christian responding to God's call and uh, using him to strengthen the church. You can read all about him, by the way, on the front page of this month's Open Doors newsletter. Then my third and final example this morning is the man behind these books, which is called The Word One-to-One. His name is Richard. Gillian and I have known him for more than 20 years. Uh, Richard is a successful businessman, and I mention him because in his testimony, Richard says that for many, many years, he was a sleepy Christian. He was in church every week, but you see, in the outside world, in the office, even amongst his extended family, he was effectively a secret Christian. As a result, there was no fire in his face. But about ten years ago, Richard felt that God was calling him to share the gospel with business colleagues, and he had no idea where to start. And so he asked his pastor to teach him how to explain John's gospel to a non-Christian. And the result is that that sleepy Christian has become an effective evangelist. And today these books that he's written are being used in churches all the way round the world. Now friends, are you getting the picture? Let me end with this statement. Um, I don't know whether it's not a poem. Uh, it's not even a proverb. No one actually knows who wrote it, but it's at the bottom of the bulletin. It goes like this. I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, 
by the grace of God, I will do. Let us pray. (coughs) Let's have a moment of silence to offer ourselves to God. And let's make those words I've just read a prayer that we say aloud together. Together. I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. Amen.